Hello and welcome to the Institute for Government. Um, thank you for joining us today to discuss should the Treasury change its economic thinking. Um, just a couple of housekeeping notes before we start. There's no fire alarm expected today, so if the fire alarm does go off, please do follow the signs uh, out and the assembly point is next to King George VI outside. Um, in the event of a uh, first aid incident, I have been asked to tell you to clear the room and to allow our first aiders to do their thing. Not quite sure what the incident might be, but please uh, do clear the room if one of those happens. Um, this event is on the record and being live streamed, uh, so we will be tweeting it. You can join us to do that with hashtag IFG election 2019, um, or do please uh, sort of stay engaged in the live debate we're having here in the room. Um, and welcome to everyone who is joining us via the live stream. This election um, Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell has laid down a clear challenge to the Treasury if he becomes uh, Chancellor after tomorrow's vote. He has said that he wants the Treasury to widen the economic theories and um, approaches that its officials, officials and civil servants across government uh, draw upon. Wow, I didn't expect to lose the, lose the audience quite that quickly. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there is a clear challenge um, from the current Labour leadership to the way that the Treasury has approached economic policy making in the past. Thinking about Boris Johnson's government and a Conservative government post-election, if we have one, it's less clear that they are setting out quite such a challenge to the Treasury, but ministers have openly questioned the modelling that civil servants have done of the economic impact of Brexit and the potential benefit of free trade agreements. And I think there is a degree of uncertainty about quite what approach to economic management a Conservative government would take after the election, and therefore worth asking the question of whether they too might pose a challenge to the way that the Treasury has approached economic policymaking in the past. And there are others with less political voices who also have raised some concerns about the Treasury's approach over recent years. So I'm really delighted that you are all able to join us today to discuss this ahead of the election tomorrow uh, and to be joined by a fantastic panel of people to reflect on this topic. So we have Anne Pettifer, who is a political economist and author. Anne's most recent books include The Production of Money and the Case for the Green New Deal. And Anne served on John McDonnell's Council of Economic Advisers. We then have Stian Westlake, who is Senior Fellow at Nesta, the UK's National Foundation for Innovation, and has served as Policy Advisor to three Science and Universities Ministers. He is a co-author of the book with Jonathan Haskell, Capitalism Without Capital, The Rise of the Intangible Economy, and more recently has written about the strange death of Tory economic thinking and reviving economic thinking on the right in the UK. So I guess you can probably guess which perspectives these two are going to speak to. And then finally, I'm delighted to be joined by Lord McPherson, who spent 30 years in the Treasury, including 11 years as Permanent Secretary to the Treasury. Um, so we'll be able to give a view from the inside and his reflections now having left. So we're going to kick off with five minutes of opening remarks from each of the panellists. I'll then pose a few questions to them after that and then open up to all of you and I'll try and allow plenty of time for you to all ask questions given how popular this event has been, how many of you there are here. I um, want to give you a chance to uh, air your questions and thoughts as well. So Anne, please do kick us off. Thank you very much, <coughs> Gemma. And it's daunting, but a great honour to be here too. So thank you very much. I hope uh, I'm not the cause of some medical incident in the room causing people to lose. <clears throat> so I want to begin by saying perhaps the economy is posing the biggest challenge to the Treasury after all. The weakness of the economy even before Brexit, in my view, poses a really big challenge to the Treasury. But when it comes to thinking about Treasury thinking, I want to begin by saying that, my, in my view, one of the biggest flaws, one of the biggest weaknesses of the Treasury's approach is its failure to understand the, or to talk about the system, the economic system, in terms of the international system. Now, one of the reasons that I'm here today <coughs> is that back in 2006, I wrote a book which the publisher insisted on calling uh, the coming First World Debt Crisis. It was published in September 2006, fell like a lead <coughs> balloon. Um, but I have subsequently been uh, described as one of the people that saw the crisis coming, and so I did. 
And the reason I was able to see the crisis coming was that I was working on the international financial system. I was working with the sovereign debtor countries, mainly in Africa, but also in Latin America, in trying to resolve their debt crises. And it became clear to me at the end of that period, the end of 2000, when I sat down at the New Economics Foundation and began to look at the whole global economy, it became clear to me that there was a massive credit inflation in particularly the Anglo-American economies, and that credit inflation was bound to lead to a massive debt deflation. What I got wrong was the timing. So my book was published in September 2006, and when the publisher insisted on the title The Coming First World Debt Crisis, I said, look, first of all, I'm not a first world, third world person. I find that offensive. Secondly, if you call it The Coming First World Debt Crisis, by September 2006, the crisis will have come and my book will be out of date. So, of course, I was wrong. So what I was right about was the instability and the imbalances in the system which were going to collapse, which was going to collapse. What, was I, what I failed to predict was the timing. And really, it was astonishing to me that it took until August 2007 and uh, the detonation day before the thing began to implode. But it does... It does explain what Sir Nicholas, uh, uh, then Sir Nicholas said, was candid enough to say, that he was one of a number of people in finance ministries, central bank regulators in the UK and the US, who failed to see the crisis coming, who failed to spot the build-up of risk. And as he says, this was a monumental collective intellectual error, <clears throat> right? <coughs> it was monumental because of its impact on ordinary um, people across the world, not just here in Britain. And it's a failure, I think, because the Treasury takes the international financial system as given, and, and it accepts what it is given, when in fact the international financial system is quite anarchic and has been since 1971 in the Nixon shock, when Nixon unilaterally dismantled the Bretton Woods system. And the tragedy of that wasn't just the dismantling of the Bretton Woods system, it was the failure of the IMF and all the other big international institutions to replace the Bretton Woods system with a new financial architecture. There is no financial architecture. There is only mayhem and anarchy out there. And without, without understanding that in the context of the British economy, it's going to be very difficult to predict or to even to analyse the economy properly. And for me, that is one of the great weaknesses of the Treasury, that it takes the international financial system as given, right? Now, what we do need to do if we want to transform the British economy is to transform the international financial system, to understand its weaknesses. And the failure to understand its weaknesses in 2007 and 2009 meant this, and, I'm, and I blame both the left and the right for that failure, may I say so. The Labour Party also had no grasp of what was about to happen, and even since then hasn't really understood the international system in its context. And as a result, what we had before the crisis was a massive credit inflation, which imploded and became a debt deflation. And since then, because there was no change made to the international system, we have once again another massive credit inflation, and we wait for the moment when it implodes. The IMF has complained about the level of global debt, the level of private corporate debt in particular, and the fact that this is going to lead to massive instability. So I've only got 30 seconds left, and I haven't started on price stability or austerity. But I think I've made the point, which is that we, we haven't understood the fact that in 1973, we deregulated the international financial system, we deregulated the British financial system, and that has caused the instabilities and the imbalances that have occurred since, both in public debt terms, but also in private debt terms. And until we transform that view, we will not be able to analyse the British economy correctly, and the Treasury will fail to do so too. Thank you. Stian, so, I mean, I know you're not speaking for the Tory party no, in any sense. I'm not even a Tory party <laughs> member, I should stress, but I will... I, so, Ex-government advisers are always, in my experience, good for a rant or two. Um, there's something about working as a government advisor. You see a lot, you keep your mouth shut, and when you leave, you kind of uh, let it all out. And so five years ago, I sat down and wrote a policy paper with um, 
Giles Wilkes, who had been a special advisor to Vince Cable at Bayes and who is a fellow of the Institute for Government now. And we wrote a paper called The End of the Treasury. And this was kind of my and Giles' collective um, cri de coeur about what we felt was the problems that the Treasury itself suffered from and caused to the wider aspects of the British government. So I'm not going to talk about the international sides of things, but more about what we felt some of the organizational <coughs> characteristics of the Treasury and their effects were. And in particular, we felt the kind of original sin of the Treasury and its kind of uh, deformation professionnelle was that, unlike in some other countries, the Treasury combined three quite significant, similar-sounding but different responsibilities. It is a budgetary ministry responsible for being the kind of chief financial officer for the government, dividing up the money, scrutinising the often ropey bids that come in from government departments for spending. It's a financial ministry responsible for the good credit of the United Kingdom, responsible up until 1997 for setting interest rates and monetary policy, and a whole bunch of quite sort of significant things that have been a major part of the UK national strategy since, you could say, the 18th century. And then it's also an economic ministry. And as Anne rightly kicked off by saying, the UK has some pretty big and long-standing economic problems relating to productivity growth. Now, those three things are similar in that they've all got to do with money and numbers with pounds on, but in some ways they're all quite different. And the critique that Giles and I advanced in this paper was that very often those things combined to make the Treasury a little bit like those companies that you sometimes hear about where the chief financial officer and the accountants run things and the new product department, the engineers, the sales team are kind of secondary. And so the kind of investment that you might like to see, investment in productivity, doesn't necessarily get made. Now, I said ex-advisors have a right to rant. I also like to think we have a right to change our mind because we then went and saw what happened after the coalition ended after a few years of the May government. And I feel, having debated this in the past with Mick and taking a very anti-Treasury point, I feel a bit repentant because when I saw what it was like to have a Conservative-led government where the Treasury didn't have the whip hand and where the view, the House view of a different department, namely the Home Office, prevailed, I would argue that potentially economic policy was done worse rather than better. The Home Office is a department that focuses on cracking down on deviance, on working out who the good people are and who the bad people are, and in making sure the bad people get jolly well taught a lesson. I think there are aspects of the May government uh, economic policy that you could see showing that what you could call the Home Office view to play on Keynes's Treasury view. Um, and I think that was potentially problematic in a different way. And we certainly was a very strange period where the Treasury was weaker than it had been probably for the previous 20 years. So I feel very bad that I had impugned this, this department slightly. But I think to sort of fast forward to the present day, um, if as some people seem to expect, Boris Johnson forms a majority government uh, later this week. Um, what could that mean for the Treasury and for economic policy? It could be a fantastic opportunity because to come back to these huge productivity challenges that we face, I published a piece recently about the idea of reviving economic thinking in the right. There is a view where a Boris Johnson government could take very seriously some of these big, intractable microeconomic policy problems that the UK face, that the Treasury, I think, has always kind of wanted to deal with, but perhaps never has had the political cover to do, like the planning system, like the fact that many of our large cities don't seem to benefit from agglomeration effects and productivity benefits, as cities in France or Germany do. Um, some serious questions about infrastructure investment that the Treasury has, has, has in my impression, always, always been quite serious about. There is an optimistic view where a Boris Johnson-led government gives the Treasury freedom to deliver on that. I think the challenge is what I sometimes think of as Schrodinger's Boris. Um, Schrodinger's cat, you kind of never know whether she's dead or alive until you open the box. My impression is that when you ask different people on the right what type of person Boris will be as Prime Minister if he, if he, is, if he wins tomorrow, um, people who are kind of neoliberal say, oh, well, yeah, Boris will show his true governors and governors are neoliberal kind of very in line with many of the Treasury's views. People who are kind of traditional conservatives believe that Boris will sort of throw off the mantle and reveal himself as a traditional conservative. Post-liberals seem to think the same thing. And um, so I think, A, 
we kind of don't know what we're going to get until we open the box. But I think the, 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 the even bigger question is actually Boris Johnson is quite good at keeping the box closed. He's sort of the cat on the inside of the box holding the lid shut. And perhaps he will preserve that ambiguity for quite a long time, which means potentially, from a Treasury point of view, that some of these big issues of national productivity may go unaddressed. Um, so it sounds a bit lame on the day before an election to say we have to wait and see, but I guess that is a, that is a general message of now. Um, but um, I think it could be it could be very exciting times, it could be disappointing times, but um, there is a lot to play for, particularly given this huge productivity challenge. Okay. Thank you, and you're very much stuck to time. So thank you for that. Nick. Um, well, look, let's, let's um, start with the, the problem. Uh, the, the incoming Chancellor is going to have to face up to. I think I, I would define them as twofold. One um, is productivity. Um, productivity has growth has, has now slowed to a complete halt and you're not going to get an increase in living standards without an increase in productivity and chances are in the next um, few years we will have a number of either minor or major supply shocks depending on um, the deal we get with the European Union assuming we leave it um, so, you know, I agree with both of the previous speakers. Productivity is absolutely critical. And, and the other point I would make is that um, the public finance inheritance is much worse, is likely to be much worse than that currently assumed by the major parties. So that's just a simple fact that we didn't have a uh, OBR forecast uh, in the autumn and I'm quite convinced that they will uh, revise down uh, both um, growth in the economy and um, the state of the public finances. And um, that matters because um, we've got quite a number of pressures coming down the line, uh, not least to do with demography, uh, social care, and so on. And it also matters because um, Whatever you think of um, the policies of Mr. Osborne and Mr. Hammond, the fact is Mr. Hammond bequeathed to his successor um, some really good public finance numbers. Within months, um, the, 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 the current um, leadership of uh, the Conservative Party has basically squandered that money through spraying it around in a deeply un prioritised sort of way. So that's the problem we've got to address. I mean, like, um, I mean, I would, I would caution against, uh, and I'm not saying that anybody's really proposing it, but I would caution against machinery of government changes. I mean, quite frankly, you can, you know, I, I agree with Stian that, you know, there are a number of different treasury functions, different countries deal with them in different ways, but, um, you know, the odd time in British history when there's been an attempt to break the Treasury up uh, with the um, Department for Economic Affairs in the 1960s, it hasn't really worked. And at the current time, actually, you know, the challenges facing this country <coughs> are such that you really don't want to be, um, you know, rearranging the deck chairs and getting everybody to apply for their own jobs again. So I think we should just put that to one side. Um, and I, I would argue, actually, for this period, we need a strong Treasury. And I'm glad that Mr. McDonnell seems to believe in a strong treasury. Um, I, I, I can't speak for Mr. Javid because I simply haven't got a strong sense. I, I understand the Prime Minister's committed to reappointing him, but I don't have a strong sense of where Mr. Javid's coming from on, on, on the role of the treasury. I, I should just pick up um, on Anne's point briefly about the international framework. I mean, look, I agree. The international framework for the economy is really important. Um, the problem if you're Britain is you've only got limited influence on it. Um, Gordon Brown spent many happy years trying to re reform the Bretton Woods institutions and um, actually was pretty unsuccessful. But that doesn't mean one shouldn't, um, you know, try to change it, form alliances, think globally. I agree with that. This is not a time for Britain to retreat uh, behind a whole lot of barriers and talk to itself. 
Um, we are a free trading nation and um, we have a massive interest in the, in, in, the, in the global system. I mean, finally, what would be my advice if I was still at the Treasury, if I was talking to Treasury officials, um, what, what would I be trying to get them to focus on at this current time other than have a reasonable holiday? Um, look, whoever wins the election, um, the Treasury needs to be agile. I mean, it's almost become a cliche, but you know, in 1979, the Treasury had no problem working with the new administration, many of whom they'd worked with before, but they simply didn't get the policy agenda of the incoming Thatcher government. I would argue in 1997, we'd done policy to death, actually. The Treasury was very well equipped to deal with whatever policy challenge the Brown regime put in front of it, but it simply didn't get the change in style of working and it took about 18 months for that to settle down following the election. So, um, unlike Mr. F uh, my friend Lord Finkelstein, actually, you know, if um, John, John McDonald says, you know, read a bit of Ralph Miliband, I don't see anything wrong with that. Personally, um, I think reading Ralph Miliband and actually Herbert Marcuse is probably a really good way of equipping yourself for the way we live now. But um, and similarly, you know, with, with the Tories, really just get underneath the skin because often it's not what an incoming administration says, it's actually some of the implicit signals of what it really wants to do. Equally, I think the Treasury really needs to um, encourage whoever the incoming administration is to prioritise. You cannot do everything at once and prioritisation at the current time is really important. For what it's worth, my view, and I'm not claiming it's the right view, I would really be encouraging um, an incoming government to focus on two things, infrastructure and skills. Um, we, if we're leaving the European Union, this country cannot move forward unless we have a more skilled workforce. Up till now, we've been relying on the Polish taxpayer to train our yeah, workforce. Yeah. That is not going to probably be an option over the next year or two. Easy to say, but really difficult to do. It requires <coughs> relentless prioritisation. Every government says it's going to reform skills. Everybody, from, quite frankly, says they're going to reform the planning system. This is all in the transmission mechanism. And so I think a Treasury which is really um, on top of that transmission mechanism and can work with the government to ensure that their priorities really um, are driven through is important. But, I mean, and the final point I would make is, look, if you are a, um, a uh, permanent civil servant, your completely, your main obligation is to serve the democratically elected government of the day. If you don't like it, you shouldn't be there. Um, and it, um, both the main parties have ambitious programs and I think it's really important that the Treasury um, helps to implement those programmes in a sensible way as possible. Thank you very much. Anne, you focused in your opening remarks uh, mainly on your critique of the way the Treasury deals with the international financial system. Yeah. But perhaps I could ask you to sort of channel your inner Labour Party thinking at the moment. I know you don't speak for the Labour Party, but... What are some of the other criticisms that um, John McDonnell um, and others have been making of the way the Treasury approach, approaches economic policy making? And do you agree with Nick's characterisation that actually the Treasury has adapted to new governments before they will be able to take this on? Or do you think it is a John McDonnell is envisaging a bigger shake-up? Um, I, I mean, I think John McDonnell is really very cautious shadow chan chancellor, too cautious for my taste. Um, and, and, and as Nick says, yes, he's in favour of, of a strong Treasury. But I do think the Labour Party is very clear also that we have a massive need for public infrastructure investment and for actually reviving the economy. I disagree with Nick that the problem is the public finances. The public finances are a consequence of the state of the economy. By ignoring the economy and focusing on the public financing, we're not solving the problem. And I think that what Labour would like to do is to focus on the economy and do something about reviving a deflated economy 
with high levels of employment, yes, but at very low levels of income, with wage levels lower than, on average, than they were before 2007 and and therefore, a massive imbalance in public finances. You know, until we start generating income in the real economy, it's not going to be possible to fix the public finances. Keynes famously said, on a radio interview, that you cannot balance the budget by shrinking the nation's income. And we have spent, the Treasury has cheered on since 2010, Osborne's plan to shrink the nation's income through austerity. And Labour is very clearly committed to reversing austerity, to expanding economic activity, but in particular to expanding income because that in turn will generate, thanks to the fiscal multiplier, will generate tax revenues for the Treasury. And the Treasury just has a blind spot for A, the multiplier, and B, and this is something of which, about which we really disagree, about the amount of spare capacity that there is in the economy, the, the, the space that there is for fiscal intervention. I think John McDonnell knows that we've got to do a great deal more in terms of fiscal intervention. Stephen, um, <coughs> we actually saw Sajid Javid when he was running for leader of the Conservative Party talk, I mean, he didn't, I think, ever use the words, but suggesting that laferism may be present, pointing to the fact that corporation tax receipts have gone up um, in particular, as rates have come down over yeah. recent years. Is that a blip, or do you think that is reflective of wider thinking within the Conservative Party and perhaps a different approach in the future? I, I genuinely think it's very hard to know. And the part of the gist of the piece that I wrote earlier this year called um, The Strange Death of Tory Economic Thinking was about the fact that there was kind of real muddle in my eyes about the way the Conservatives had started thinking about the economy. Because whether or not you agree with austerity, and I totally understand that there are different viewpoints on it, it was absolutely a kind of core belief of the Conservative Party. It was an extremely strong political message, and they kind of won, won over a lot of people with it, one way or another. Um, but when I look at the state of thinking, particularly in around the time of the leadership challenge, it seemed that you had, you had the Mayites, who were very much in favor of kind of industrial strategy and a sort of message that they would reach out to left behind towns. There was quite a lot of corporatism in the kind of industrial strategy challenge fund and things like that. At the same time, you had people who, at the time I described it as people cosplaying or LARPing Thatcherism. They were sort of harking back to the Thatcherite policies of the 80s, like the Laffer Curve. But somehow it often didn't seem thought through. It seemed quite performative. And one of the things that I would hope, and this is, I guess, a way in which good Treasury civil servants can push the government, is to say, well, okay, what do you really believe on economic policies? You know, is there a kind of, is there a coherent philosophy of Boris Boosterism or something like that? Or, you know, do you want to be Thatcherites? Do you want to kind of reprise the 1980s or, 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 or what? Because I think, you know, it's um, whether or not I'd agree with any particular one of those, I think it would be nice to see see something rigorously pursued. Yeah. Nick, it does seem like, actually, oddly, there are, I'd say, sort of three areas where the left and right have, seem to have similar criticisms of um, Treasury economic thinking. So it seems to me that there is, in the current set of manifestos, a much more relaxed attitude to borrowing for investment than perhaps we've seen in the past. Um, obviously, the recent policy has been a function of the governments as much as it has been of the advice the Treasury has been giving them. It also seems, the, the point that Anne was just raising, uh, that both left and right seem to be more in pushing the line of the Treasury should care more about the size of the pie rather than thinking about the micro details of whether you can raise tax or raise spending. Um, and in particular, so I guess Anne set out the, the left-wing version of that, which is we should worry less about public spending because actually that generates benefits for the economy and that all comes back to be beneficial to the Treasury. The right-wing version is the reverse, tends to be tax cutting can boost economic growth and therefore we should think do my more dynamic scoring. And there's also perhaps a mutual shift, although I take Stian's point that it's still quite unclear what the Conservative Party is thinking on this, but perhaps a mutual shift towards slightly more protectionism um, than the Treasury economic policy has favoured in the past. Am I right to pick up those commonalities? Is this really a challenge to Treasury, or will an incoming government find that Treasury advice convinces them that none of this is really uh, the right way to go? 
Well, um, I think um, the Treasury should have an open, open mind on these issues. Um, I mean, look, I think historically it's fair to say that the Treasury, really going back to Gladstone, has been pretty committed to free trade. Um, and, uh, you know, it's quite hard to stack up arguments in a developed, certainly in a developed world, that protectionism uh, does, you, does you much good, especially if you're a smaller country as Britain. So um, I, I would hope um, that at least the Treasury would um, hold up a mirror to those who argue that uh, protection and propping up uh, failing firms um, is, is the answer. Um, and I, I definitely detected sort of towards the end of the Cameron period into the May period that there has been an increasing view that um, you know, state aid um, can be a good thing. Um, the public finances, I mean, look, interest rates are absurdly low, um, and this country has a tendency to chronically underinvest. It also has a tendency chronically to overconsume, which is why, um, uh, which is reflected in people who live here, the politicians they elect, and um, sometimes this gets the country into difficulty. I'm all in favour of more investment. You only have to look at a long-term chart of investment, and it basically fell off a cliff when we went to the IMF in 1976. And um, I think if this country is to get through the supply-side shock of Brexit, then some really sensible, focused um, investment, which has a high economic return, forget prestige projects, focus on sensible investment, possibly on a much higher scale than hitherto. Um, I, I'm all right with that. Um, I think if you're going to invest more, you probably need to consume uh, less, but that's, that's another, another issue. I think if I was advising Mr. McDonnell, the critical thing um, is about maintaining confidence uh, to allow you to play a longer game. You only have to look at Britain's experience 1974 to 1976, uh, the Mitterrand-Socialist-Communist co Coalition, 81 to 83. If, 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 if you try and do too much too quickly, you risk getting on the wrong side of the markets, and then um, you, know, you just have continuing um, tension. So you've, you kind of need to um, just have a bit of a game plan there. Um, you know, I know in the modern world, actually, generally, governments can always fund themselves, but so a loss of confidence tends to be reflected in the exchange rate. But you know, a, a reduction in the exchange rate just makes the country poorer and actually hits uh, the people who are most affected by things like rising food prices are um, the poorest in society. So um, those who advocate, you know, just letting the letting sterling fall. Uh, a great deal, I think, should um, should should just have a degree of caution. Um, you make an interesting point about taxing and spending. I mean, the interesting issue is that we now have a Conservative government which is taxing more than any Conservative government since the war and any government since 1969. Um, and um, the. I've seen many a government plan to raise the tax share in the economy, um, ex ante. Um, more often than not, they fail. So that doesn't mean you shouldn't try and raise taxes, but again, uh, I think having a really coherent plan to make those tax increases stick is, um, is very important. Um, just a final point on public finances. Um, Yes, you can, you can run a bigger deficit, but, um, and, you know, those who advocated austerity may, may or may not have been right, but the one thing is absolutely certain back in 2009, um, which I remembered extremely well, once you are running a deficit of 10% of GDP, you do have to do something. It is not an option to run a deficit of 10% of GDP year after year <coughs> after year. The fact is your debt builds up very um, significantly and unless you're a country like Japan which has a captive 
um, savings market which is prepared to buy your debt, which Britain doesn't, um, people begin to question um, you know, the, the ultimate solvency of the government. So I just think, look, if you're going to run a higher deficit, for God's sake, whatever your plan is, stick to it. Um, what you can't have is running deficits of 5, 6, 7% of GDP, but <coughs> then always falling slightly the wrong side of your plans, because that begins to damage credibility. And I would say that on both main parties, because I don't think either main party, coming back to my point about the baseline that they have inherited, quite realise how difficult it's going to be even to stick to their announced plans. Can I just come back on that point, on the two points of, you know, a Labour government wanting to invest, to improve infrastructure, to improve skills, and remember we've been told for 30 years now that we don't need to improve skills because we can always import them, not only expecting the Polish taxpayer but the South African taxpayer to train our nurses and to train blah. So that, that this has been a very deliberate globalisation policy, if you like, right? So if we want to address the skills issue and invest in skills, we've got to do something about our view of the, of the British economy as being part of a global economy and able to draw on cheap labour uh, from all around the world. <clears throat> but the second point I want to make is that if, if, if Macdonald was to invest, Nick is arguing that he has to maintain the confidence of the markets and that spending is going to undermine the confidence of the markets. Now, what are the markets? We don't know. Who are they? We don't know. They're unaccountable, they're invisible, they're out there in the globalized stratosphere. But the point of my experience is that the markets want prosperity. The markets want economic activity. The markets will go where there is good business, where actually things are happening, right? The markets right now are, are, red, are so terrified that they are paying governments to be able to lend to governments like the German government, right? So we, and even the British government. So the markets in the mo at the moment are panicking because of the absence, because of the deflationary nature, not just of the British economy, but of the global economy, right? So for me, the real issue isn't to worry about the markets. The, the issue is to worry about restoring the health of the British economy. And the, the British economy is anemic, stagnant, and about to go negative, basically. This is what we really, and this is pre-Brexit. This is on the basis of deflationary policies that originate with the Treasury. So to have that confidence, again, you know, Nick talks about the markets as if we're just passive here, and we just have to lie down and wait for those unaccountable characters to dictate. And, and that's I'm, not, that's I'm, really not the way to be thinking about our economy. I'm not actually saying that. I'm not saying, look, the government should slavishly follow the whims of the market. I completely agree with you. I mean, there's not, you know, um, one should definitely downplay that. But if you want to be in power for the longer term, you want to establish confidence in the policies you're adopting. And I think to ignore um, market pressures altogether, I just think is um, <coughs> potentially dangerous, as Mitterrand found out in 83 and Healy found out in 76. Now, I'm not saying that it, this means you should implement Tory policies or indeed um, excessively sort of um, tight fiscal policies. It's just, you know, a socialist policies can work a lot better if you can at least um, uh, establish that there is a coherent and consistent plan and um, that um, you can broadly maintain the value of your currency. You know, I don't have that kind of confidence in the way the markets think. So I worked on sovereign debt in 1918-98. Russia defaults on her sovereign debt. She just defaults, you know, just decides she's not going to pay her foreign debts. Boom, overnight. The next day, the markets were in, you know, were in Russia. Why? Because Russia now had a, a, a clean balance sheet and because they understood that Russia had assets and so on to which they, from which they would benefit. There so is I don't think cost, the markets work in that rational way. <laughs> okay. Well, look, I'm, I certainly wouldn't advocate default. Great. <laughs> Stephen, do you want to pitch in on this debate before we go to... I, when I hear it, it, this reminds me of what I see from, from in equity markets, 
from, um, from the way equity analysts, the way institutional investors seem to behave with relation to companies, which is that they absolutely want, basically they want earnings growth, they want high quality earnings, they want earnings growth. But there is a point below which they lose confidence, and consequently, if you can't satisfy CFOs, if CEOs can't satisfy equity markets, that they can deliver at some basic level. So I suppose there's a question of, is there some minimal level of hygiene that you need to meet so that you get a license to operate from markets, and once you've done that, actually you need reflationary policy? I don't want us to get stuck on this one no, single issue. I, I do want to allow time. Give, for the I audience. want to get back to the political economy. You know, the reason why Boris and and the Tories are now, you know, reneging on the the Hammond the Hammond approach to the Treasury, is because they see what we see, which is that the rise of protectionism is a reaction to a weakening economy is a reaction to the fact that people feel they have no control over their ability to buy a house, to send their kids to university, uh, and they worried about their health and so on. And the reaction to that is increased protectionism. That's not good. That disrupts the market system, and I'm not advocating that. But, but the politicians can see that they've got to do something about the economy in order to avoid this Brexit reaction or even worse reactions, the reactions that led, for example, to the rise of Donald Trump. Now, if the Treasury persists in, we've got to balance the books, we're going to persist in creating the political economy that is so destructive for balancing the books. And I, and I think it's the absence of looking in that broader political uh, context which makes it really difficult for politicians. And the Treasury should have some respect for why politicians are now so fearful and why they are reneging on this commitment to austerity. Well, I think, sorry, no. well I, mean, I do want to go to the audience for questions. I mean, I, yeah. I guess no, no, as, as Nick said, civil servants are there to serve the government of the day, and I, I think Nick would presume the argument that that is what they have been doing. So I don't in a sense want to um, be presenting here that the policies implemented are the Treasury driving yeah. that um, as opposed to choices that <coughs> governments have made um, for themselves in the past. So let's. We'll go to questions from the audience. If people in the overflow room do have questions to ask, please do poke your head around the door. Um, let's go to Tara and then Chris, and then we'll go over there. Thanks very much, Tara. That's from McKinsey. I don't want to go into the kind of uh, fiscal big policy debate, so I wanted to ask a different question. You mentioned infrastructure and skills. And if we take skills in particular, my question is going to be, um, you know, does the Treasury have the thinking and the capacity to actually make the business case for investment in skills. And here are a couple of facts that I don't think are being heard by anyone. We have about 30 million people in the workforce. 80% of them are still going to be there in 2030. In other words, whatever we do to education is not going to help the vast majority of people in terms of productivity and adoption of technology and so on. If we do not help those people, then you know there's going to continue to be a big um, disruption to the lowest paid people who are already low skilled, 50% of whom have had zero training since they left school. Um, we currently spend five pounds per person in the UK, government funded training for adults. Suspect that that would need to be something more like 500 or even 5,000 per person for us to actually have the sort of productivity benefits from technology that we need and not to have this kind of massive um, sort of discrepancy between low and high skilled people. Assuming those facts are correct, is there, is there going to be an ability to make a business case for something as soft as skills at the Treasury? Okay. Chris? Uh, very similar question to, uh, Chris Giles with the Financial Times. Very similar question to Tara's question, which is, if we assume there are resource constraints in the UK economy, so we can't just spend and get unlimited amounts of growth, uh, and there are trade-offs, therefore, we have to make skills and infrastructure tend to be very, very long-term in their payback period. What happens over the next five years? Right. And the third question, just over there. Hello, Alan Bailey, former Treasury. Um, one comment, one question. O on the confidence and markets issue, I know uh, um, the government can borrow at very low interest rates 
and, and it all seems a bit theoretical and long-term, and maybe uh, uh, that won't be a block. But um, most of my time in the Treasury was uh, dominated by sterling crises, and the effect on the currency is pretty immediate by, with any doubt about uh, confidence in, in the go go government, and that means the pound in your pocket straight away uh, and um, I hope any incoming government will be aware of that rather than poo-pooing the whole issue. The um, uh, question is to Nick, uh, it may sound like a bit of a, sa a side issue, but uh, my question is, does the uh, capital current distinction imported from uh, commercial accounting uh, uh, sometimes get in the way of uh, uh, um, the, uh, maximizing public sector value in accordance, of course, with the minister's priorities, as Nick was emphasizing, uh, because um, uh, we, it seems in the manifestos and so on to um, encourage people to talk about investment in infrastructure when the infrastructure may pay back for less long and, and less than training and, and um, retaining staff, which counts as current spending and is, is a good deal more inhibited because it sounds as if you have to get, take it out of current revenue and therefore can't borrow. Great. Thank you very much. So we had Tara's question on does the Treasury have the expertise to think about developing a good skills policy? Chris's question about how much of what we're talking about investing in skills and infrastructure is very long term. What are we going to do over the next five years of the new government? And Alan's um, question to Nick about whether we're, uh, our rules around capital and current spending are distorting us to invest in infrastructure rather than um, skills, which may also have long term benefits. Um, Nick, do you want to start? Some of that was posed directly. Okay. Um, why, don't, why, don't I, why don't I start? So, um, look. Um, Chris, you've identified the fundamental problem um, in British economic policy making. We all know in this room that if you could make a step change in the skills of the working population and a step change in infrastructure, this economy would work better. But um, governments have a far shorter time horizon. Skills are not sexy. Um, both major parties tend to be run by people who benefited from higher education, their children are in higher education. It's very striking the governments have made a difference uh, to things like higher, higher education policy and actually also to be fair schools. Um, but skills is a gaping hole. And picking on Terra's point, um, you're probably right. You, you've got to spend a large amount of money. That means spending less even, you know, even if you, we ran the most ambitious fiscal policy, it still means spending less on something else. And I would, um, I know it's not in any government's manifesto, but at some point we've got to face up to the fact that we are targeting a huge amount of money at old people through the completely um, very expensive triple lock pensions uh, uprating formula, when actually we, there's a, there's a real need to focus on young people mm -hmm. and the less skilled now. So um, whether we've got the skill, look, I know in Whitehall there are enough people um, with enough ability to make a difference in this space. The Treasury has convening power. I'm not saying the Treasury should take responsibility for skills policy, but it needs to champion it working with the relevant agencies. Finally, I mean, look, I completely agree. Um, I think there is merit in separating capital from current spending. I think I look back and having cut public spending around about 1992, and the first thing we went for was the roads programme because it was easy, no one noticed it. Um, um, I mean, they noticed it in the end, but in the short run. Um, but a, a really sensible debate about definitions, which isn't about fiddling the figures, but it recognises that human capital uh, creation um, has a genuine return. But in the end, we've got to, as a nation in my view, um, face up to the fact that with chronically low productivity growth, with Brexit, 
we have got to prioritise um, investment in its widest sense over just chucking more money at the old folk. I mean, I've just <laughs> recently got my old person's bus pass, and it's bloody good. But I'm back, and I'm entitled to it, so I'm taking it. But, um, but that's worth something like £3,000 before tax. I do not need that sort of transfer, and it's just mad. Um, do you want to come in? Yes, I, mean, I think Chris's <coughs> point was really important, this question of resource constraints. But I want us to think about the next five years as if we were going to war because what we face is a crisis for which our economic policies are not radical enough, in my view, not radical enough to deal with the threat that we face of climate breakdown, of, this, of our life support <coughs> systems breaking down. And this has been an issue, thank God, in this election campaign, but it's really not been important enough. But if that is the threat that we face, Chris, it, it will be amazing what the British people can do within five years. You know, I, I agree that there are massive constraints. I think it's the neglect of our educational system and our skills and our training system has been criminal. But I also believe that there is a degree of genius and of capacity in this economy, human capacity, which is underutilized, which is, des de de you know, is, de is definitely underutilized and almost deliberately underutilized. Um, so I, don't, I know that we won't have enough teachers, enough trainers to, to skill people up in, for example, the transformation of the economy that's needed to tackle climate breakdown. But I also know that just investing in a few people and beginning the process will actually see a kind of ball rolling. And, and, and I think it's to sort of fall back and say it's all rather hopeless would be uh, something unthinkable if we were going to war. And it is something that I think, given that the threat that climate breakdown poses to this economy, to our stability, to our social, political, as well as our ecological stability, I think we could achieve an enormous amount in five years if we put our will to it. And if we came away from this obsession with the public finances, instead obsessed ourselves with what we need to do to fix this economy. Um, I think the skills question is a really interesting one. I am, uh, my question is whether the real problems that we need to solve on skills lie within the Treasury. Um, politically, I'm quite optimistic about skills. For me, whenever I see a pundit write one of their kind of casually jotted off five-point arguments about what should happen to the economy. Improving skills is always there, or even worse, having more apprenticeships. It seems to be a kind of received wisdom in the post-Brexit era among a lot of kind of high-level opinion formers. But I think when I look at it, I, the things that worry me is not so much the Treasury's awareness of the issue. My impression is the Treasury kind of is, sees that as being a problem. I think I worry about, having been a bit within the DfE, I worry about the ability to identify where the skills needs are, in my limited experience, a lot of that seemed to be done at an extremely high level, not necessarily related very much to, 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 to employers' needs. Um, I worry about the difficulty specifically, as you said, the issue of retraining existing workers. I know Nestor is doing some work on that, trying to look for best practice around the world, but it seems pretty thin on the ground, really successful examples of retraining workers. And the thing that really troubles me from a political point of view is that this might be a bit of a cargo cult, because people, look back at the economy of the 1950s and the 1960s, and they see, well, times are good then. Wage growth was high, productivity growth was high, society seemed a bit less equal, and, you know, we also had lots of manufacturing, we also had apprenticeships, and I worry sometimes that we're trying to just sort of, in a cargo cult style, try and pick bits of the economy. And what worries me about that is not the fact that it encourages us to invest in skills, which I think is important, but the worry that it might lend itself to sticking plaster solutions that if we can come up with some things that satisfy voters that something is being done, the hearts back to the old days, that that is enough, and that we won't tackle the really important issues, Tara, Chris, that you, that you outlined. Nick, can I ask you one question of my own? Um, the Treasury's kind of had a pretty challenging 10 years. Post-crisis, it obviously was faced with the challenge of beefing up its expertise in financial services, which have perhaps been a bit lacking um, pre-crisis. Yeah, yeah at the same time as staff numbers were actually cut in the Treasury, 
and some of the expertise on economic and fiscal forecasting was hived off into the OBR. How has the Treasury dealt with sort of maintaining and up, updating its economic expertise in the face of some of those other challenges? Well, as, as I understand it, the Treasury has actually expanded in size quite a lot. In, in, well, since 2016. In, in recent years, so there must have been opportunities to, to bring people in. I think, I mean, look, the, um, I do think making sure you are bringing um, people in um, with different experience, um, a diversity of perspectives, especially if there's a new government, um, you know, you can't just rely on special advisors um, to um, serve the system, you know, ensuring that you're drawing on academia and um, think tanks and so on, making use of contemporary contracts as well as long-term employment contracts. I think, I mean, look, the Treasury, the Treasury's always good at attracting good, good people, in my experience. The, the challenge it faces is hanging on to them. Um, and some of that is about sort of tedious issues like pay and, um, you know, how, how you live in, in London in the modern economy. But actually part of it is also about, is this a fun, engaging place to work? And, you know, I'm quite sure if, I don't know, if Mr McDonald became Chancellor, um, you know, that would be quite an exciting, um, interesting experience. You, 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 you kind of want a Chancellor who's got a grip, who's got a plan, who's going to provide leadership, is going to win battles within Whitehall, will work well with the Prime Minister to drive an agenda forward. I think, you know, <coughs> we, we, we could be on, on the verge of something quite, um, quite exciting. On the other hand, if, if things go on like they appear to have gone on, and I have to say, I've, you know, I've, I've hardly visited the Treasury in, since I left three and a half years ago, so I'm totally out of touch with how morale is. But um, I hope that after the election, you know, the government sits down and starts governing rather than just be in perpetual campaign mode, uh, which it has been now for some months. That is not, that's never a good time for the Treasury. Great, and we'll have one final round of questions then. So there's one there, there, and one over there. Thanks. Uh, Anita Charlesworth at the Health Foundation and formerly of the Treasury. Um, I wanted to ask not, I, I, I'm with I think probably every member of the panel in thinking that structural change to the institution of the Treasury and government is not the solution. But I would argue for perhaps a bit of revolution from within the, the Treasury. One of the things that you've all highlighted is how important long-term structural issues are to our economic success. And obviously you've spoken about the productivity challenge. Nick also talked about demography and there was a brief mention uh, of, of environmental challenge. And my observation from having been in the, the, the Treasury is it's full of very clever people who it makes incredibly busy on very short-term policy. Uh, and actually, if you're going to not, not dictate, I mean, so the Treasury shouldn't tell government what to think, but it should be there as a source of absolute expertise and innovative ideas. And how do you do that without an internal research function? And there is, I mean, very unusually when you look at the Bank of England, you look at international, I was reading IMF papers today, you look at the role of officials in, in, in some of those international institutions and in our own other economic institutions like the Bank of England, they have research organisations that are thinking about the economics of, uh, of some of these longer term issues. And protecting a space for that within the Treasury has seemed incredibly um, hard and it wouldn't be any, you know there's no panaceas or silver bullets in, in this area but it is interesting that the Treasury itself has very little protected time for innovative and long-term thinking. Great and gentlemen please. Uh, Graham Butler from, uh, uh, from Chatham House. Um, I would be interested in Nick's view on the point that Anne raised about climate change and whether that in fact is an area that the Treasury needs to do some quite radical new thinking, and in a way as a parallel to what Mark Carney is already doing on the central bank side. And linked to that, that I wonder if there is an issue around the relationship between the Treasury and other departments. Because quite often one hears the phrase, well, yes, it might be good to let the automatic stabilizers work, 
but we can't trust other departments to spend the money wisely. Or it might be good to use uh, extremely low interest rates to invest in the climate transition, but we can't, you know, much of the money might be wasted. And I just wonder if there is a solution to that, then perhaps the Treasury should be trying harder to find a solution, or actually the whole government. Thank you. I think we have one more question Yeah, Chris Meyer from The Times. I just wanted to pick up the point about, everyone's talked about the importance of investment, but Nick, you talked about sensible investment, not prestige projects. Well, what does that mean in, in practice? Uh, and secondly, how do you balance that with uh, the demographic pressures you talked about, meaning that to maintain the same level of service that people are used to, we're going to have to spend more in the short term here and now and chuck more money at the elderly? I'll get panelists to respond in reverse order to what I did last time. Um, and do feel free to add any closing remarks you would like to make as well. Um, I guess two immediate responses. I think, Anita, your point about long-term thinking and research I think is hugely important. And I think we, the government recently announced a £42 million investment in a productivity research centre. My big worry for that is it doesn't do what you wisely suggest it should do and does lots of middle event studies on individual policies which generate fantastic papers that go into Econometrica or whatever. I think that's hugely important and I would love to see someone do it, whether it's in the Treasury or um, the new, the new centre. Um, lots of other people talk about climate change, but Chris, um, this question about sensible investment, not prestige projects, one response I would give to that is... I think one thing that John McDonnell is quite right about, not so much with respect to the Treasury, but in his pitch that part of the Bank of England should move to Birmingham, is that I think there's a strong case for saying that so much of British investment decisions and public policy being set within a few hundred metres of where we're sitting now causes what I guess equity investors would call a form of home bias, that we underrate the importance of projects, particularly things like local investment in transport in core mm. cities, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not against mega projects. I'm very pro things like HS2 and Crossrail. But I do wonder whether, when you look at the cost-benefit ratios that are applied to projects like Leeds Tram and so forth, um, as people like Tom Forther pointed out, really good projects that are a long way from London seem, for whatever reason, not to get funded. So maybe, maybe John McDonald was onto something there. Uh. My goodness, <coughs> McDonald's getting a good, <laughs> good. That's very nice. Um, I, I don't think I have much to add, and I, I just absolutely have to agree about the the need for long term thinking and research, and and that I look to the OECD and also to the NIESR for that kind of long term research, uh, and not to uh, the OBR or the Treasury or dare I say it, the IFS and. I think the really critical bit for me is the need to think macroeconomically and not microeconomically. I don't think I have much to add on sensible investment. And clearly, you know, what is sensible investment? Well, uh, you know, there are huge gaps, huge weaknesses, and an awful lot to be done. Um, but I think we're quite capable of it. I, I'm not sure that just moving uh, the Bank of England to Birmingham is going to do that. Um, what I think would be more important is to manage the monetary system, the financial system, to make it possible for private sector firms to borrow at affordable rates of interest. And for me, that's really the most important element of the economy, is the rate of interest that are being charged to real uh, enterprises and not just to those uh, who deal with the Bank of England. Um, uh, so the monetary policy should be so set to enable interest rates across the spectrum of borrowing to be low and sustainable and affordable for companies to be able to take risks and to invest and, and to expand. And until that happens, having the Bank of England in Birmingham isn't going to make any much difference. So for me, it's about those big monetary issues that, that really we have to look at in order to make investment viable. And I have supreme confidence in the ability of the British people and of British entrepreneurs and of British public servants to make sensible decisions, but they require a stable framework <laughs> and a sound framework within which to do that. Right now, the framework is, sorry, nothing to do with us, Gov. Go ahead and do whatever you can do within the framework of this chaotic and anarchic financial system. And, and sorry, we've got nothing, we can do nothing about it, really. And I think the fact that John McDonnell does want to do something about it and does want to provide a sound framework 
is encouraging, and I'm glad others are encouraged by it too. Um, I thought uh, Anita and Prion made some you know, really good points. Yes, look, the, the Treasury does need to be better at focusing on longer term. It, it is possible, I mean, you will recall, Anita, we worked together on welfare to work, welfare reform, um, the Wanderers Review and so on. It, it is possible to shift resources in the Treasury onto longer term projects and harness through partnership with people like the Centre for Economic Performance or, uh, you know, the National Institute to create something bigger. I, I think there's... A, there is a benefit in the Treasury being small. It needs to be agile, but it equally needs to be able to um, crank up resources. And, uh, and the long term is obviously important. And climate change at the current time is um, particularly important. Um, the, the, the point about it in sensible, sensible investment, I just, I do think. I mean, one of the better reforms which happened while I was at the Treasury, and actually it was uh, Nick Stern who kicked this off uh, with um, that nice man whose name, Mr Johnson, who's in charge of the IFS, which was, in the context of a spending review, um, rank projects by their economic return. And what you tend to find out is that um, if, you, if you actually... Given that investment resources are always going to be rationed in the end, um, if you focus on projects with the biggest economic return, that will generally end up having the biggest effect on the economy. I'm, I'm very pleased that um, you know, Mr. McDonnell is proposing to focus on net worth as an indicator mm. of um, where the public sector is. I think that's um, an interesting idea because... Um, one of, one of the dangers at the current time is we just, rather like how current spending has been so sort of scattergun, let's just spray around extra money on this, that and the other. The one thing we do know is that there are severe supply constraints in the construction industry. And if we go about investment in let's just spend, 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 we will just drive up uh, the cost of uh, contracting. We'll get a lot of construction inflation. So... We need a coherent approach which recognises the labour constraints which stem from Brexit. So we need a plan. We've got a National Infrastructure Commission. I think this is all doable, but um, generally with these things, there's a right way of doing it and a wrong way. Thank you very much. We are unfortunately now out of time. Thank you all very much for joining us today for what... I think it's been a pretty wide-ranging uh, discussion. It's clear that whether or not the Treasury's economic thinking is going to be challenged, certainly the Treasury from the Chancellor down after the election are going to face some big issues about how to boost the UK economy going forwards. Um, please just join me in thanking our excellent panellists. <laughs>